Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. Patriotic history is more suspect these days than it was when I was its young student 50 years ago, writes Elliot Cohen. But he continues, civic education is also inextricably interwoven with patriotism, without which commitment to the values that make free government possible will not exist, since civic education depends not only on an understanding of fundamental processes and institutions, but on a commitment to those processes and institutions. These are observations contained in Cohen's contribution to a new title from Templeton Press, How to Educate an American, the Conservative Vision for Tomorrow's Schools, edited by Michael J. Petrelli and Chester E. Finn Jr. With me to discuss this essay, civic education, and the possibility of teaching history for the common good are Jonathan Zimmerman, professor of history of education at the University of Pennsylvania, himself a former public school studies, social studies teacher, and Elliot Cohen, Dean and Robert E. Osgood Professor of the Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. Great to be here. It's good to be here. Thanks so uh, you uh, begin, Elliot, with um, discussing your first historical loves, uh, which was very resonant with me. You were clearing out your uh, mother's home. I've just been clearing out uh, after yeah, your mother died at, uh, at 90. My father just died in June at 89. And as part of that, I've been clearing out the the home that my grandparents built in 1933, which was filled with um, memorabilia of my gr- my 20-something grandmother's uh, founding of a school and of her graduating from the University of Pennsylvania as an uh, adult student um, and with a degree in education. And, uh, you know, a lot of John Dewey uh Turns out that the Beards wrote a history of America for uh, schools in the twenties. Um, a lot of like, that. that's it. Yeah. That's it. Uh, they uh, there's a lot of like games for high, school administrators. You know, from 1926, um, and lots of the books that I devoured whenever I was at Nana's, um, which are fit within this mode that you're describing. So you could could you describe your first loves? Well, we can probably talk about our first loves, I think, probably for the next two hours, but you go ahead. Right. So uh, there were really, I, I suppose, three different groups of uh, things that I was reading as a kid. One was the Landmark series. Uh, this is about 180 or so volumes that was commissioned by Bennett Cerf, one of the great editors of uh, the 20th century, by really some quite formidable figures on the American literary scene, writing you know, biographies and uh, histories targeted, I would say, at pe- kids in their maybe early teens. Second were a set of novels by Kenneth Roberts, who was a historical novelist who wrote in particular about uh, New England. His One of his main characters is Benedict Arnold, and he his, uh, interestingly enough, his portrayal of Arnold is quite a heroic one. And that's had a, a lasting effect on me, I, I think. But it's things like the American attack on uh, Canada in 1775-76, uh, a wonderful novel called Oliver Wiswell, which is the American Revolution is seen by a loyalist, uh, Northwest Passage, a whole bunch of things like that. And that in turn led to American heritage. 
which my parents subscribed to, which at that time was a beautifully produced hardcover magazine. And again, the the writing in it was a who's who of American, um, popular American historians of the time, people like Bruce Catton, uh, a very formidable Civil War historian, was the the editor. Uh, and you read it and, and you see this, it really is a who's who, people like Richard Ketchum and, and others writing for it. And I, I would say you put those three together. It wasn't that um, any of those gave one a sugar-coated um, version of the past. As I said, I mean, Kenneth Roberts tells the story of the revolution through the eyes of a, uh, a loyalist. But what they all offered was uh, a sense of the American story as a absolutely enthralling um, and often inspiring one, despite the dark sides, which absolutely are there. And that it really it's what got me hooked on the study of history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had much the same experience. But let's talk to John Zerman, because I'm sure, John, that you must have had similar experiences like that, too, at least before graduate school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, a little bit different because we all are that. Um, uh, first of all, um, I'm really sorry um, about the loss of your dad. Um, uh, I, I lost my dad a couple of years ago, and uh, he was a great small L liberal and somebody to think about uh, during conversations like this one. And uh, I also just want to thank Elliot Cohen for a terrific article. My own story is kind of different. I mean, I, uh, I would say I didn't become obsessed with American history until I joined the Peace Corps and went to rural Nepal. I know this is a little counterintuitive, but that's what happened to me. Um, As you might guess, most of the people that become academicians out of the Peace Corps are anthropologists, right, who study the area that they served in. In my own group of 15, there were three anthropologists, um, people that became anthropologists. Um, The experience of being in an extremely remote part of the Himalayas, a three-day walk from vehicular traffic, had the opposite effect on me. I mean, I absolutely love Nepal. I feel incredibly grateful I was able to go there. But it wasn't until I was at a huge remove from the United States that I think I started to think seriously about it. And it's there that thanks to the munificence of the Peace Corps, which would send us books, uh, which took you know a week to get there and were delivered by, by like a guy who was barefoot. I read C. Van Woodward's Strange Career of Jim Crow. I read <laughs> Dean Slavery. I read Edmund Morgan um, about uh, uh, you know freedom and slavery, and that's where I got hooked on United States history because it was the first time I think that I was at a sufficient remove to really start thinking about it. So of course you know there I am in the in, in, in rural Nepal, and there's a very rigid caste system. Turns out that the country I came from had a very rigid caste system, right, which had only ended a couple years before that. Uh, but I never put those two things together. Or, you know, one of I live with a family that really took me in as their own, and one of the, uh, uh, you know, daughters turned 16, and it was time to marry her off. Uh, and, of course, you know, there was arranged marriage in almost every society, including America, um, uh, in earlier eras, but I hadn't put that together either. So that was really my encounter with American history, strangely. I um, I had uh, it uncanny how similar mine is to Elliot Cohen's. I encountered the landmark books in my Morris Gubin School Elementary Library in the process of reading my way through it. And uh, I went back the other a couple of years ago and saw my signature still in the library card uh, in one of them. And uh, so you're able to track my intellectual progress from like second grade when I started actually started reading um, to, you know, eighth grade. And uh, I remember, the, I, I think I, 
the most important book to me was Richard Tregascus, who is a war correspondent on Guadalcanal. And he had written for adults Guadalcanal Diary. And then he cut it down for surf. He cut Guadalcanal Diary. And when I was uh, in second grade, my greatest ambition, two great ambitions were to be uh, Colonel of the First Marine, Commanding Officer of the First Marine Air Wing and Governor of Virginia. I'm not sure why. But um, uh, and uh, I there was a veteran of Guadalcanal lived down the hill and over the gully from us. And I would read a chapter in Tregascus. And I would go over and ask him about it and if this was true. Now, I thought I was preparing to be a Marine. But what I realized now was that somehow I was both enthusiastic about the Marines, but also I was acting like a historian. I was checking my sources. I was cross-referencing and collating. I was, you know, Sam Weinberg would approve uh, already. And Sam Weinberg hadn't started working on this at the time. Uh, So that was a main tremendous influence. Johnny Tremaine was a tremendous influence. Um, and I, I could go along. And, and in fact, uh, Kenneth Roberts was a tremendous influence, even though, um, so I was saying to Elliot earlier, having, going back to uh, such books as an adult is sometimes a mistake, uh, because going back to Roberts, um, I have been disappointed, but this gets us, to, gets us to something. I think back at Augustana college, we had on our, our first goal for students of the department was that they like history. Um, that if they didn't like history, by the time they graduated, we had done something wrong. That was like our self-assessment as well. Yeah. And I think there's something to that. Um, uh, what What do you think, John? Well, look, I mean, uh, uh, it seems to me this was, I think, I think one of the very important points in Elliot's article is that it was a lot easier to write history when it was written by people that wrote in actual English, um, you know, not in jargon. Um, who wrote for a wider audience than the 200 specialists in their field. And think about the people that I read in the Peace Corps, right? They were all in that category, right? Then Woodward, you know, Ed Morgan, Eugene Genovese, obviously all very different figures with different backgrounds, but all people who imagine themselves as writing for a much wider audience than a small handful of experts. Um, and, 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 and both of them history, very concerned with prose style. Definitely, right? And, and I mean, it, I think it's a style and it's also just a kind of sensibility, right? Um, where, you know, you're not just speaking to an in-group, right? And you're actually trying to appeal to people who perhaps don't know a huge amount about the subject, but are curious about it, and you think should know about it. I think there's an evangelical dimension to all of that too, evangelical in the dictionary sense, not the, not the Christian sense, mm-hmm. you know, where you're actually trying to enlist people who you think should know about this subject. Um, And, you know, I think for a whole variety of reasons involving professionalization and grant making and everything else, um, that didn't become a job requirement um, for American historians. Quite the contrary. It became something that was rather exceptional. So, you know, you mentioned Charles and Mary Beard earlier, right? If you had asked Charles Beard, you know, are you a public intellectual, Um, (laughs) wouldn't have understood the term because he just took it as commonplace and obvious that his role was to educate a very wide swath of people. The term public intellectual didn't exist in Charles Beard's day because people like Beard just assumed that that's what you were supposed to do. Um, And then I think, again, for a whole variety of reasons involving specialization and professionalization, all of that changed. Um, And so now not only is there no duty to do that, but sometimes people look askance if you do it. It, it makes you a thin scholar. Like how important, yeah. how sophisticated could you be 
if just sort of, you know, any Joe or Susie could read and understand what you write. Elliot Cohen, could we, uh, could you summarize the the thrust of your argument beyond the starting out with this, uh, this rediscovering your first loves and then yep. understanding something about the nature of passion for the past, for the American past? Yeah. Well, so first I just want to say, I agree with everything that uh, John just said, including uh, the A's and the thes. Uh, I think that uh, that's my creation. And I, I also think, by the way, it's uh, that's a wonderful mission statement for a history department. Uh, and unfortunately, there are very few history departments now, which I think would uh, put that, at, uh, what you described as, you know, kindling a love uh, for the past, um, w- would put that front and center. So the, the you know the the argument of the of the article really is that um, first patriotic history does does not have to be um, nationalistic history. It doesn't have to be history that conceals the dark part of the American past. Far from it. But that if if you want to create citizens, and you know a free country depends on citizenship, part of what you do have to kindle is um, a certain kind of love of the country's institutions, and above all, having heroes, and that is something that I think we really have um, we really have lost. And it's not so much as a, a result of um, I would say falsehoods about people; it's a loss of balance. So you know, if if all that you know about Franklin Delano Roosevelt is the truly awful incarceration of Japanese Americans in the West Coast in uh, detention camps during World War II, but you don't know any of the other things about FDR, including you know leading this country through the Depression and then through World War II, you know you're not going to you, you'll you'll have a profoundly unbalanced history of your own um, of where of where you come from. You'll have no measuring stick for assessing political leaders in the world around us. And perhaps worst of all, I think one loses a certain kind of reverence for the institutions, not necessarily as they always are, but as things that they can be. And when citizens lose a kind of reverence for their institutions, then the Republic is in danger. Then, you know, all kinds of, um, Extremists and lunatics can take charge, and you know we we had one demonstration of what that can look like on uh, January sixth. But it can come from left or from right. It can come in a lots and lots of different ways. So it's it's a matter of real moment. This isn't just uh, you know an older guy grousing that uh, the kids no longer read Kenneth Roberts. It's it's something a lot more serious than that. Yeah, John Zimmerman. Yeah, you know. Um... Uh, I think I, I think I think I agree, but I'd put a slightly different spin on it. Absolutely, we need an understanding of our history and our institutions to revive our civic life. I mean, just to give you one very self-serving example, this is my latest little book, "Free Speech and Why You Should Give a Damn." And what is it? Well, it's a very short history of the way that free speech has been both embraced and denied in the United States. Um, And most of all, how it's powered every great movement for social justice, uh, from abolition through the civil rights movement through gay rights. The reason I wrote it is that 
I have two daughters, 27 and 24, who are from the generation that thinks free speech is a conservative value because people on Fox News are screaming about cancel culture. Um, and it's not a conservative value. It's not a liberal one. It's an American one. Um, and it's the heart of every great campaign for justice in this country. I think what I just made is a patriotic statement. Um, you know, it's a patriotic statement because it encourages us to look backwards at, I think, what, you know, what Elliot Cohen would call heroes and heroines um, who have put their own lives and livelihoods on the line in order to preserve something really fundamental that is always at risk, which is our freedom and our freedom of speech. I think the only place where perhaps, and this might be shading more than difference, I guess I'm a little bit wary about telling young people who their heroes and heroines should be. Um, I think I agree with Elliot that we're all inspired by someone or something. Um, but um, as a patriot, what I love about America is that, uh, as Justice Jackson said, no official, higher petty. Um, is the boss of us and can tell us what's right or wrong um, or even what America means. America is a question. And what I love about America is that in America, you get to answer that question yourself. That's what makes me patriotic. And I guess I'm a little bit wary of answering that question for anyone. I celebrate the question, but I do not want to impose any answers. So if if I if I could I I think this is more shading than yeah. uh, fundamental difference, um, and I don't think you have to say look here's your list of twenty five heroes, you know be like Harriet Tubman, right. um, but but I do think it's entirely appropriate to put before kids a, a range of figures, um, you know for political leaders Lincoln if if you don't admire Lincoln I think there's a big problem. <laughs> Uh, that you have, um, but it would include sort of the Harry Tubmans of this world because I think young people do need to be inspired. I, I also, you know, to, to your, uh, I want to read your book, um, to what you said. One of my favorite stories is that one of Benjamin Franklin coming out of the Constitutional Convention and he's asked by the crowd, uh, which of course has no idea really what's going on inside, what kind of government uh, have you given us, Dr. Franklin? And he famously says, a republic, if you can keep it. And, and I think um, part of the magic of America is that it was understood from the very beginning that this is something of an experiment. Uh, this is an enterprise which is not simply bequeathed to you. This is something you have to, you're going to struggle for and people will disagree about what it all means, um, and that it's, it's alive. And in a way, you know, that part of, I think what I'm arguing for is exposing students to, a, and, and people in general, to a kind of history that is a living history and not just a, you know, a collection of dead facts um, about the past. And, 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 I, and I would add, I mean, obviously I endorse that a hundred percent, but take the Lincoln example, you know, I think the, I think the other thing that makes it a living history is watching all these people grapple with these questions of what America is going to be, right? And grapple in complicated ways. So since Elliot mentioned history, he 
Here's our cartoon of Lincoln. Yo, great emancipator. And there's, you know, a, a, a northern dissident from the Civil War in jail. Um, uh, Lincoln essentially signing his warrant. Um, this is complicated territory, right? I mean, you know, Lincoln, Lincoln's government closed hundreds of newspapers in the North because they thought they were copperheads. Uh, incidentally, Lincoln came to regret a lot of that and actually criticized a bunch of his generals for going too far in that zone. Um, but, you know, to me, that's the good stuff. Um, the good stuff is, okay, we're in a war. Um, what Lincoln's argument is, we've got to win the war so we can't have people on our team playing for the other team. Well, what do you make of that? Um, you know, that's the question. And to me, that's also the richness, because that's what we have to deal with all the time. Um, you know, uh, what are the restrictions here? Um, uh, do they change during war? Um, and which side are you on? And, and I, I, what I would add to that is, you know, if you look at the story of Lincoln, whose views evolve, um, you know, particularly about black Americans, he starts off basically in favor of, of colonization, right. kind of shipping everybody off to Liberia. And then he comes around and realizes that's not going to happen. And it's not desirable that it happens. Um, I think when you look at any of the, the large figures of the past, what you quickly see is complexity. Right. And and change and contingency and something some ways in which they're shaped by their environment, uh, other ways in which they really mold themselves. I mean, George Washington, an even more powerful case, I think, particularly if you look at his, his attitudes towards slavery, which evolved. Um, and and the study of the, you know the kind of study of the past, which uh, I would like to see more of, would recognize that, would get students to wrestle with that. Um, I think we're in an era, unfortunately, where the, the rush to judgment and to kind of pigeonholing, particularly political persons, into really, you know, tight categories, which usually to be condemned, um, you know, it's it's a terrible way of thinking about politics. And, and it's it's really actually a recipe for political disaster if if you do that, because nobody can live up to those impossibly pure standards which we're trying to impose on people who lived one or two centuries ago. No, I, I agree I, with that. And to me, it's just, it's kind of just a, a sad reversal of sort of the old flag waving dogmas, right? If you opened up the McGuffey reader in the 19th century, you would see like, you know, George Washington was just totally awesome. He couldn't tell a lie. He cut down the cherry tree, you know, da, 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 da. And, you know, I, um, uh, no critique, McGuffey would have been baffled by the idea of critique. Like, what's to ask? Like, he's the father of our country. Um, but, you know, canceling him by taking his name off schools, to me, that's that's a weird McGuffey redux. Obviously, it's brought to you by a totally different set of um, people in a different time with different politics. But what it has in common is just this, this, this kind of um, a unitary view, right? Um, with McGuffey, he can't tell a lie. He's perfect. And now he's this awful person because he owned human beings. But there's no gray. There's nothing in between. It's black or white. It's good or bad. And that's just not a good formula for raising citizens in a democracy. Um, democracy doesn't really work that way. Like that's a good, if, if you want somebody, if you want to prepare a citizen to be in Saddam Hussein's bath party, um, that sort of black and white instruction is very useful. 
right? Uh, because there's one truth and you want to make it clear to them. Uh, but if you want to prepare people to live in a democracy, it's not at all useful. I um, want to st- stick something in here. Um, maybe a little defense of Professor McGuffey, who uh, reformed the institution right down the street from where I'm sitting. Uh, but McGuffey had a deeper uh, and more subtler sense of human personality than many people do today. And this, to use a phrase that Eliot fortunately does not use in his essay, I think much of this uh, has to do with a lack of philosophical anthropology. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a very strange view of human nature these days. And there, I expect a 19-year-old to lack self-criticism, other than in a dramatic, sometimes destructive teenage way. I I expect that. But subtle self-criticism shouldn't be expected. But I'm always struck by the fact that um, a 45-year-old historian might not realize that future generations might find them to be enmeshed in evil and that they might not know what that evil is. I mean, that's the other obnoxious thing about this moment is, is, you know, just the, the hubris that goes with rendering these judgments and forgetting that, uh, you know, as Al's reminding us that we're going to be judged, you know, and we will suck. Uh, We just don't don't know how, right? That's the only (laughs) word that will suck, right? We just don't know the details. Um, You know, the example I often give is, you know, I have very clear uh, dear friends and relatives that are vegetarians and I'm not. It is totally plausible that in a hundred years now, eating an animal may seem as evil, to use Al's term, as eating yeah. or enslaving a human being. That's plausible. That's right. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, you, you've, you've got to deal with that somehow, right? You've got to step out of your moment and imagine how you will be imagined and yes. show just a little bit more grace to the people that came before you. It may be I, love, I love that example because I've often compared Wendell Phillips to say PETA um, in class to explain that why uh, someone like, why isn't Link, why isn't Wendell Phillips on Lincoln's side? And there's a conflation of these. And I said, well, you know, understand that, you know, there are like, Lincoln is like a vegetarian and then there are vegans, you know, but he eats meat. He's a pescatarian or something. You know, he eats meat occasionally. He's not in favor of factory farming. But, you know, then there are the crazies Mm -hmm. and that's the way that, you know, a hundred years from now, maybe they'll look back and see people that most of us have never heard of vegetarian activists as the real heroes of our moment. Right. Which is, which, and, and, you know, I, 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 this is, I think this is completely right. I, I think one of the great joys when you meet a really good historian is they bring people out of that. So I remember um, actually going back to George Washington a conversation with Don Higginbotham, a wonderful historian of the revolution, uh, including Daniel Morgan. Yeah, my my great predecessor. Um, And I remember a conversation with him where he once said, you know what the secret of George Washington was? I said, no. He said, George Washington never stopped working on George Washington, Hmm. which I think is a, it's a lovely way of capturing something that was very true about Washington with his blindnesses, with his terrible temper, and all that, and and it was there was a kind of a sober maturity in in Higginbotham's judgment, which you know you really would like to pass on to people. I have a question, which actually I'd throw out to the two of you. So why is it that historians 
are as kind of, um, you know, puritanically, and this is, it's meaning no insult to the Puritans, um, judgmental as so many of them, as so many of them are. And I've often wondered if it's because, partly because of the nature of the professionalization of history, but it's also that so many of them have had no other experience of life than the academy, um, or don't, or don't even wish that they had that experience, or, or don't particularly value that experience. And I, you know, I, I do think that that makes it a lot easier to look at people from, you know, previous centuries and say, well, you don't, you're not living up to the standards of 2021. And so therefore you're a really bad, bad, bad person. John, go ahead. I, I don't want to touch that. <laughs> well, well, you know, um, uh, I, I think that, um, that the bigger problem here is, you know, going back to people like Van Woodward and Genovese, is that we don't require people to engage audiences beyond their little circle. And that's not a good formula for creativity. It's a good formula for groupthink. You know, now I should also tell you, though, that I do think it's changing in some salutary ways, in part for a terrible reason that the academic job market has gone to hell. Um, And so, you know, there may be historians out there who think they're preparing their students to teach their PhD students to teach at Amherst College. They're not. And it's not because there's anything wrong with their PhD students. It's because Amherst isn't hiring. You know, and so I do think that in some spaces there's been kind of an interesting reckoning with this. And again, for some very sad reasons, I think that um, it's changing. I mean, I can tell you when I was a junior professor, I've always written for public audiences as well as writing my academic books. I had some senior professor tell me to stop doing that, the public part. Um, uh, It was taking me away from my book. And again, it was making me look sort of facile and hollow. And well, I, I, don't... I should say that, John, you are perhaps the most prolific op-ed writer in the American historical profession. That's how you were introduced. You were pointed out to me at the AHA once across the oh. crowded room. Is He writes more op-eds than that, three times as many, you know, or something. Well, it's, so, like, it's, it's more like a nervous tick at this point. Um, but <laughs> my line on that, my, uh, you know, my, my pitch, if you will, has changed, you know, like, I used to tell other historians that I think that this is just a duty that you have as somebody who has had a great deal invested in them, has enjoyed all sorts of privileges. It's a duty to share with other people what you've learned. I still believe that, but it's not a very effective pitch because you have to appeal to people's self-interest. You know, uh, my grandfather said change starts from the stomach. You know, and, and that's true, right? And if you, you, know, you know, like uh, uh, if, if you want to really motivate somebody, you have to appeal to their self-interest. And I think, again, because of the way that um, the academic job market has changed, I think there is a stomach-related argument for this now. It's quite unlikely that many of the people who are trained to be professional historians are going to have like typical academic jobs. Um, and so what that means is if we're just preparing them for that job, we're basically committing malpractice, I think. Yeah, but yeah, Elliot, you know, Elliot, the, the, I, I agree with that. I, I, yeah. I was going to say, I, I was just gonna my, say response I, to, I, my response yeah, to your question would be um, uh, Woodward, Genovese, I, there's a way in which I don't have the data on this, and John might know it, 
but I, I've wondered often as I contemplate uh, people around the seminar table, if we're not, if there's not a smaller social demographic of people becoming professors in some, on not, not cultural, not ethnic, but social of demographic, that people are coming from the same thing. Woodward and Genovese, just to name two people, wildly different origins, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, they also, there was a draft. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a greater sense of, of certainly mailed, male shared experience through that previous generation of things. I mean, uh, Morgan, I forget what his MOS was in the war, but he was, you know, they, all these guys had, had served in one you know, way or the other. Um, a lot of also interesting, uh, a lot of American historians in a previous generation had more languages than English than I think is now. I'm, I'm not certain about that. I would love to do some surveys on that. But mm-hmm. you have uh, a lot more American historians had a languages other than English, but still chose to do American history, um, mm-hmm. which my impression, my sort of uh, is 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 not quite the case now. I don't think if anyone had Chinese, they would do American history now. I think mm-hmm. they should. <laughs> I think that'd be good yeah. for them. And I, so I think there's a weird way in which we are wealthier and more cosmopolitan and diverse. And yet there are certain fundamental experiences between the ages of so 16 and 24, which are more limiting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's right. The point about languages really strikes home. Um, I, you know, I know a number of, American historians who really don't, they don't have any foreign language. And one of the consequences of that is um, it's a kind of solipsism about the American past where anything that happens, it has to be a result of American action or decisions. Right. Yeah, And, you know, this is a, when, when I do my writing for, you know, also op-eds, not quite as many as John, but a fair number. Um, you know, it's one of the things I like to keep on reminding people. We're not the only actors in the world. Other people make decisions. Other people do things. I think there's also a, a previous generation, which simply the, having gone through World War II, if if I were to expand a little bit uh, beyond historians, and I think of my own teachers, uh, people like Judith Sklar, a political philosopher, she had been a refugee from Europe, or, or yeah. even the ones who simply grew up during the war. You know, there was this sense that I think many of them felt that history had kind of rolled over them. Yeah. Uh, in a big way and turned their world upside down because all their uncles went off to war or something like that. So there was a sense of kind of seriousness that was built into this. On, on the upside, I, you know, in the article I do, um, I mean, there are, I agree, there are some promising signs and you get some eminent historians who are kind of breaking out of this. The one who I think is most interesting is Jill Lepore, yeah. who uh, writes frequently for the New Yorker, um, is, so some of this is also about willingness to take on big themes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, and and to play with them, which is not really what the um, the historical profession, I agree, tends to value. The, the downside is, though, I think John is right about you know it being hard for PhD students to get jobs. The problem is, if you're tenured, it's a pretty sweet deal still, uh, and I think there is some. Uh, people who, you know, are not unhappy that history departments have shrunk. It means they teach less. I mean, there's, there's a kind of perversity in, in the university ecosystem where the better you are, that, you know, the, the, the mark of your success is how few students you have to teach <laughs> and how few classes you have to teach. 
And I mean, as a dean, this is something that yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I fret about a lot that, you know, obviously the academic life is about both research and teaching, but I think we're, we've gotten to a point where we devalue teaching in ways that are quite damaging and it just accelerates the pattern that we've been describing. Yes. And well, John's and, written an entire book about that. So yes, it's, that, uh, this is, that, it's, that was the previous book, um, yeah. uh, uh, you know, a history of college teaching. And I'm really glad Elliot brought that up because I do think it belongs in this discussion. You know, um, it, it doesn't happen as much as it used to, but still every so often you'll get this sort of puzzled query from a colleague like, why do you write for public audiences? What's the point? And I'm like, dude, you have a public audience too. It's called your students. That's a lay audience, right? If we're talking undergrads, right? None of them are experts. Almost none of them are going to become like historians. Um, uh, they happen to be a captive audience, but they're still a lay one, right? So we all do that or we're enjoined to do that. Um, but, you know, um, as Elliot was pointing out, we do it far less because our student numbers have gone way down. Now, I don't think we can lay that all at the feet of the historical profession. You know, I'm not trying to deny anything that Elliot is claiming here about sort of a lot of the problems with our pros and our approaches. But I think we also have to look at some very big picture things here. I mean, enrollments in the humanities in general have gone way down. So, I mean, that's point number one. We can't, it's not just about history. You know, um, uh, I think we have to look at bigger changes in higher ed, the way a lot of it has been vocationalized. Let's remember that, you know, the entire context of higher ed has changed dramatically since I was a kid. And I think that's an important context for this entire discussion. So check this out. I went to college when I was 18, 17, actually. I was residential. I completed in four years, and I majored in a liberal art. Mm -hmm. My strong guess is that would describe both of you. And that's what mm -hmm. we think college is, right? That's the minority experience now, yeah. right? So what I consider the modal experience is the minority experience. The biggest major in the United States is business. Um, the second biggest major uh, um, are the health sciences, broadly defined. Um, uh, and so, and and this has happened fair in it's a fairly recent vintage, you know. Um, and uh, you know, let's also remember that we also live in a time where you know several governors have said that we should only give assistance to students that are going to go into STEM fields because uh -huh. how is an anthropology degree going to help you in the world? And I think uh -huh. so. There's there's just a bigger social and political context. I think for all of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, although I, I guess I'm a little bit harsher than you are, John, on the disciplines, uh, including the humanities. Uh, I mean, okay, an anecdote is not a, a trend, but I remember visiting a uh, unnamed history department. There's a big poster for a uh, major talk on um, virtual pedophilia and aesthetic information. <laughs> and I just looked at that and, okay, what are we supposed to do with that? And I, I, I think uh, it's not just history. I mean, in some ways history is better off than some of the other disciplines and mm -hmm. certainly the humanities, but the social sciences as well, where, you know, they've just kind of gone off into crazy land. And guess what? The kids vote with their feet. Right. Whereas, right. you know, I think any employer will tell you, if you learn how to think carefully, if you can write really well, if you can speak really well, you have a, you have a leg up. Right. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, I, I certainly see, I've seen this at SICE in, in my years there. I mean, I ran the biggest program at the school before I became dean, and there was massive doses of, of history, um, which, you know, and, and these are students who are professional students. They're not right. going to, um, to, to become academics. So they, you know, they, they understood the, <clears throat> the value of it, but it, it's just not where a lot of the humanities and social sciences are. I'm afraid. Definitely not. And look, to some degree, we've dug our own grave. I mean, there's no question about that, you know, um, and, and it's different from different in different disciplines, right? The grave, right? I mean, in poli-sci, I would argue things have gone so sort of radically quant that most regular people, including like a, a like a guy with a PhD in history like me, can't understand it. Like if I can't understand what the political sciences is saying, like what about just somebody else? Just some random I even took a stats course and I and I have a hard time these days, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, um, uh, uh, you know that that has a different history, obviously, and it's trending in another direction towards this sort of scientism. But I think the outcome is the same, and the students will vote for their feet. I mean, look, I've 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 been affiliated with two history departments at two major research universities, and unless I've missed something, they've never offered a course in the American presidency. And whenever I've suggested that, people will say things like, "Oh, that's a dead field." Or we don't have an expert in it. And in, in point of fact, any credible person with a PhD could teach that course, right? I mean, if they put their mind to it, right? We all know a huge amount about presidents, probably more than we even know we know. Um, so it's not that we lack the knowledge, right? It's just that, and also uh, no course on Congress um, or the Supreme Court. And it's like... Uh-huh. I think those are the three branches of our government, I think, you know, and isn't it ironic that, you know, you go into most history classrooms now and you hear a lot about power and there's, you know, power in the shop floor and power in the bedroom and power, and that's all true and real and important mm-hmm. to think about. But I do think Congress exerts power and I'm sure the president does. I think Congress makes laws and the president signs them. Like, isn't that power? Um, this, but, you know, yeah. You, you won't find courses in that generally in in leading American universities. And as Elliot is you know pointing out, should we be surprised that people vote with their feet? They see yeah. that the professors are teaching a really specialized course about whatever it was they're writing their book about. And it's, you know, medicine in medieval Europe. Well, kind of an interesting uh, subject, but, you know, fairly narrow when you get right down to it. And not something that's probably going to get a lot of nineteen-year-olds really psyched about history. Uh, yeah, and we let me just follow up on that and start to pull the threads together to close this off. Um, there is a sort of uh, willed helplessness in the humanities, uh, as I was saying to a, a English uh, a colleague, a English department colleague about a year ago. I said, "I worry about you guys because I see that in your eyes you're lacking the will to live, and when you go." <laughs> Then we're, then we're then we're then we're next. I mean, right now, historians, we've got the philosophers and the religious studies and the English out to our flank, while the you know the maw of you know arm of, of Leviathan is coming closer. Uh, but you know, once the English is once the English is gone, they've got nothing nothing else left to defend us. No one else to throw to lo- the, the the beast. Get nostalgic for the days of like Lynn Cheney and Alan Bloom, because if you'll excuse my French, at least people gave a shit, right? 
Like yeah, the culture yeah. wars in the '90s were about the humanities, you know. And Bloom is like, yeah. "Oh, we're making everyone into relativists," you know. And Lynn Cheney is like, "Oh, we, you know, nobody loves America." And whatever you think of those critiques, at least it mattered, you yeah. know. Like, give me some Alan Bloom, like, like not Bloom in particular, but like, give me like some great culture war battle about the humanities. I'd love it. And following on that, I, what's always struck me is how reluctant uh, fellow colleagues were to fight for undergraduate majors. Um, and I was completely shameless, I'm happy to say, in, um, in, in trying to change business majors who didn't want to be business majors into double majors. Right. And saying, you know, don't you want an MBA? Yeah, sure, I want an MBA. Well, what do you think your business degree is going to look like when you go to get an MBA? They don't care if you got an MBA. They want you to be an interesting, thoughtful person. You well, know. but the, the, you know, there's an even deeper thing here, which you know, when uh, you said that you guys have lost the will to live, and that's actually serious. So, it if is. you look at classics, you know, the, the classics is a field that is committing suicide. Yeah, because you have prominent classicists who say this is all, you know, I, you can all spill it out, um, and uh, th there's actually a very interesting uh, op-ed in the Washington Post today by Cornell West. Mm -hmm. Okay, no right-wing nutcase, um, uh, denouncing Howard for abolishing its classics department, hmm. saying, okay, who do you think Frederick Douglass read? <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and which authors do you think mattered to Frederick Douglass? Who do you think Du Bois read, for crying out loud? And, I mean, and, and Du Bois did too, but but that's, you know, classics is going to go the way of the dodo. This and is, it, there, are, there are groups of young, recently enslaved men in November of 1865 in Charleston, freaking South Carolina, who are were learning Attic Greek. And when you read those, like even in the accounts, it makes you it makes me cry. First of all, for the power of their intelligence that was being that was digging itself out of the grave into which they had been put. And then to also think, you know, well, you know. Uh, who's going to do it? anyway? Enough. <laughs> and, and also, as somebody in the, in the Chronicle pointed out recently, I now of course forgetting whom. Like, how do you make the case for more resources if your founding principle is that you're like racist and sexist and horrible? It's like yeah. we're racist and sexist and horrible, and can we have some more money? It's like no, no, you can't. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we we could get a civil rights suit against us from the Justice Department or something yeah, like that. I mean, yeah. we 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 have, we have an institution of of learn of directed white supremacy, and we want more money for it. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> Sounds like a great yeah. deal, you know. That the yeah. Well, let's uh, let's tie this up uh, with all. Speaking of classics, maybe tossing back a nice coffee cup full of hemlock. But um, <laughs> what uh, where where. What was the, uh, Ellie, if I may, when you write an article like this, uh, do you envision change? Because <laughs> uh, because, <laughs> because I read this and I think, you know, there's a, one of uh, my favorite uh, books in the historical uh, scholarship of teaching and learning in history is History for the Common Good. And uh, I, I can put that in the show notes. John's not nodding. He knows it well. Uh, and I've often like I read it and I think, well, you know, chance would be a fine thing. But what we're talking about here is history for the common good. Um, so what do you what do you want anything to change? What would you like to change? Just one tiny thing. Um, I think I guess I'd like to see a reissue of the landmark. Uh, series, but more importantly, I think I'd, I'd like to see there. There are a number of kind of creative um, 
things like summer camps for teachers and so on, which I think really have a lot to contribute. So uh, as, as Al, as you know, one of my uh, historical loves is the um, Lake Champlain Valley and all the history associated with that. I wrote a, uh, uh, a book which a friend of mine described as a, uh, a love note to the Great Warpath, which is what the Indians uh, uh, called it. So I'm, I'm on the board of trustees of Fort Ticonderoga, and they do actually a wonderful job of bringing high school teachers in and teaching them about the history of that part of the country, which is also the history of the Seven Years' War and of the Revolution, and giving them the tools and things to do. I think um, those kinds of activities are, are are really well worth it. But you know, more broadly, since uh, John's also a uh, prolific op-ed writer, you know, there are two different models. One is you throw a rock into a pond; there are a few ripples, <laughs> and then the pond is what the pond was. The, the other model is, uh, I think, the way Emily Dickinson described uh, poetry. You know, it's it's like putting something in an envelope and there's, you don't put it in a return address and you drop it in the mailbox and you have no idea who's going to open it, uh, when it will be opened and what it will do to them. But you kind of live in hope uh, that, that it will have some impact later on. I, I do think there is, um, I mean, I think there's signs of health and I, I think there are, um, and, and this is not isolated from other kinds of concerns about academic freedom and free speech, <clears throat> and so on, where people who you would have described as liberals on the one hand and conservatives on the other turn out to be in violent agreement, uh, sort of a centrist, uh, a centrist consensus that is now standing up on its hind legs and making the case. So I, I guess I have a kind of diffuse uh, hopefulness that you know, the, the pendulum will swing back. And that is why I'm encouraged by somebody like Jill Lepore, who I don't think would have been where she is now, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And I think we'll see more figures uh, like that. Um, but maybe I'm naive. I don't know. John Zimmerman, final comment. I, I think, uh, you know, I share Elliot's optimism. I mean, I, I think you sort of have to, to be in this gig. You know, um, I think there's been more attention to civic education in the past four years for some pretty obvious reasons. And you see, like, the group that Daniel Allen has converged at Harvard, you know, and um, uh, convened, sorry, and, you know, several other groups like that. I think the real hurdle, I'm glad that Elian mentioned, you know, free speech and academic freedom, because it isn't just that's what my last book is about. I think that's really a central um let's just say necessary condition for all this stuff. So, you know, one of the things that we've discovered from the political scientists that we're able to comprehend is that the country has gotten radically polarized and that people have stopped speaking with each other. People consume different media. Um, they get a news feed. Just think about that metaphor, right? It's like time for your 2 p.m. feeding, right? Um, information tailored to your particular biases and search history. It'll be good for you, you know, <laughs> and that's not a good formula for civic education or democracy. And, you know, it seems to me that, and the history piece and the free speech piece come together here. You know, what we need is we need to bring people together to debate their common history. And I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but it is not right? We do share a history and we share a debate about the history. 
So, you know, I live in Pennsylvania. It's a very purple state. And we, there's this organization called PA250, which is going to be in charge of, you know, celebrating the 250th anniversary of Declaration of Independence, which was signed in Philadelphia. It's a fairly central national event. And, you know, I had a call with them recently, and I was persuading, I, persuading is probably the wrong word, pleading, that really what we need to do is, since such a purple state, bring high school kids from different parts of the state, state together, have them read the Second Amendment. And then tell us what they think about gun control. And I don't know if this will happen. I think it should. But if it doesn't, it will tell you something really important about how afraid we are to talk. Like what I just described, that doesn't sound like rocket science to me. That just sounds like good civic and historical education, right? Okay, what's the Second Amendment? How have people interpreted it over time? How do you interpret it now? Like, duh, right? But this is like a radical idea. Because ooh, we disagree about it. And fundamentally, and by the way, we do. And the kids know that, right? They know way more than we ever give them credit for. But we are afraid. All of us are. That's the big inhibitor here. Our fear, our fear of each other and our fear of speaking with each other. Well, my guests today have been Elliot Cohen. He's the author uh, most recently of a contribution in the new book, How to Educate an American, and John Zimmerman, who has written, I thought most recently, The Amateur Hour, but now the most recent book, John, is? Free Speech and Why You Should Give It Down. And I should tell you, it's illustrated by Signe Wilkinson, who was the first woman in the United States to get the Pulitzer for cartoon. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being uh, together with me. Thank you, Alex. This is great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Brunat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.